0: rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Always. Pessimists will not do that. You'll focus on self. You'll focus on the flesh. You'll live a woe is me. Life will become about your circumstances. But the Bible says those who walk by faith learn to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. See that? That's The opportunity in the difficulty. There is positive that can come from negative. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let's say that verse out loud together. Everybody together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So understand that a successful life according to God is not determined so much by what happens to you, as it is by what happens within you. If what's going on within you is as it should be, then what happens around you will be able to be confronted with the proper attitude and you'll still be able to live with joy even in the midst of sadness. You won't always be able to uh, keep from changing your circumstances, but you can keep your circumstances from changing you and that's what you want to make sure that you're in the position of seeing happen. The way we choose to do that is by understanding that it is a choice to rejoice. And that's good news for a lot of us here may think that we're just so negative and pessimistic and we can't get over that and we're condemned to live that way till Jesus comes. No, it's not true. God can change your mind, God can change your heart. God can give you an attitude adjustment. And the Bible says that, Psalm 30 and verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Now this is coming, of course, from a psalmist who's in a world of hurt. If you read the Psalms um, regularly, as I try to do, Uh, because they're just so real, and they're just so encouraging, and so many of them are framed positively, but framed positively in the midst of very negative circumstances. David's writing a lot of that, and he's writing these Psalms, many of them, as enemies are after him. Saul is chasing him, trying to kill him. Life is not always easy for those who are writing the Psalms, but yet They focus on God. It's through their writing that they're made aware. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Everything's okay because God's bigger than the enemy. God's bigger than the adversary. God's sovereign. God is creator. God is Lord. God is in control, and I can trust him and don't have to be afraid. How many Psalms do you read? You see that very thing being fleshed out, and this is one of them here. And this is what the Lord wants to do with you. You're going to have difficult times in life, but your difficulties don't have to shape you. You can shape your difficulties through your response to them. And I'm going to show you how to do that as we address the question tonight Does my attitude really matter? Look at three things with me. The first thing you do to ensure that you live with the right attitude is to create the right atmosphere. Create the right atmosphere. We're going to kind of read through the passage step-by-step here tonight rather than all at once because it's a lengthy passage. And in this passage tonight in Genesis 18, we find Abraham uh, in the wake of this great encounter with God where God changes his name. And I mean, Abraham was circumcised when he was 99 years old as a sign of his covenant relationship with God. And so we find Abraham sitting, probably dozing out in the doorway of his tent. I don't know how long it's been since he's been circumcised, but maybe he just feels still like he just needs to sit down for a while. Amen. So he's, he's outside the door of his tent. It's the hot part of the day. We were over in Spain not long ago where they still siesta for three or four hours in the hot part. It's hot in Seville. Seville, Spain is like Phoenix, Arizona It's a dry, uh, oppressive kind of heat. They just shut everything down in the middle of the day. In Seville, Spain, there are four rush hours a day. You got the morning rush hour in, then you got the siesta rush hour out, and then you got the late afternoon rush hour back in, and then you've got the evening rush hour back out. And so I don't know if siesta is worth it. When when you got traffic, back in the day, everybody was walking around. That's one thing. So it's the hot part of the day, and everybody's kind of shutting down. And so there's Abraham at the door of his tent, minding his own business. As he's dozing, maybe he opens his eyes, and he spots three strangers walking toward him out in the distance. Just kind of appear out of nowhere. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia. The great David Lean movie and Lawrence of Arabia is out in the middle of the desert and it's just flat. There's nothing there but sand, flat, as far as the eye can see, all the way around. And then all of a sudden, coming way out in the distance, he sees a little figure coming toward him. And it ends up being Omar Sharif riding toward him on a camel because Lawrence of Arabia stopped by his well. How he knew from a gajillion miles away there was a guy drinking out of his well, I don't know. But he knew it. And he just slowly is riding toward him. And the small millimeter gets a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until he's right there and jumps off of the camel. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Abraham looks off in the distance and he doesn't see one figure. He sees three coming toward him. And he's wondering, who are these people? Well, we find out one of them was the Lord. Verse 1. And the Lord appeared... To Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now who is this Lord? You know who I think it was? I think it was Jesus Christ. That's who I think it was. We call this a pre-incarnate experience or appearing of Jesus Christ as Lord. I believe this is an appearance of God. I remember Adrian Rogers teaching me many years ago. If in Scripture it is God in a human body, whether it's Old Testament or new, there's only one God with a body, and His name is Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. So I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. This is the Lord. This is the word Yahweh. This is the proper name for God in the Bible. And with him are two other celestial beings in human form. These are angelic beings. So we have a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ together with two angelic beings who, as we see later, those guys are going to hang around. Jesus is not going to hang around physically but the two angelic beings are going to hang around and those two, these same two angelic beings are going to have a role to play in the upcoming judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the miniseries that came out a few um, years ago, a couple, three years ago called The Bible? It was a big deal. It was on network television. It started at Easter and it was a great... There was a scene in there about Sodom and Gomorrah, and the two angels were present, and they showed up. I don't know if you remember it, but they showed up. You remember the ninja angels? I mean, these angels were ninjas, man, and my kids just loved it. They thought it was the greatest portrayal of angels they'd ever seen in their lives. Well, that's, I don't know, the ninja part is biblical, but the two angels surely were, and these two are going to be very, they have a historic role to play uh, a little bit later on, which we'll get to later. But what I want you to notice tonight is how Abraham responds. He knows he's in the presence of greatness, and his response kind of speaks volumes. Let's pick up our reading in verse 2. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, o Lord." If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be broad and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread so that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. Now, if you're going to have a good, healthy, positive outlook, one thing I've learned is you've got to set the stage for that to happen. You've got to make sure you've got the right environment, the right surroundings. That's why I always instructed my kids when they were home growing up, your friends really do make a difference. And you want to make sure as parents that you're helping your children surround themselves with the right friends. You say, well, I just think that, you know, that ought to form naturally. Well, good luck to you, and let me know in about 15 years how that's working out for you. No, you better help your kids select their, children, uh, their friends, because the reality is your environment makes all the difference. If you surround yourself with negative, pessimistic people, what's likely going to happen to you? Listen, I've literally seen that happen a number of times. Sweet-spirited people start running with the wrong crowd, and the next thing you know, they have fallen off into the ditch. And they've become just like the people that they're running around with. So you've got to be very careful that you set the right, positive, uplifting, encouraging spiritual environment. And that's what Abraham did. You notice what he does here, first of all? He makes sure, are you all listening? Say amen. He makes sure the Lord was welcomed in his home. He made sure the Lord was welcomed in his home. I think that's the key point. If you want a life that majors on optimism, hope, peace, stability, encouragement, enthusiasm, you've got to make sure the Lord is welcome in your home. And you're to do that, obviously, it ought to be obvious to others when they walk through the door that this is a different house. This is a different environment that I'm in. That ought to be obvious in more ways than one. I was traveling in Memphis a few years ago, and while I was there, I spotted in a Christian bookstore, it's actually the bookstore in Bellevue Baptist Church, this beautifully framed and matted, large print of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it was beautiful script and it had a beautiful frame on it, it had beautiful matting on it, and I thought, man, this thing's gonna be two, three hundred dollars. And it wasn't anywhere near that. They had it on clearance. They wanted to get it off the wall, bring other stuff in, I guess. And so I had Judy come and look at it. I said, why don't we buy this, put it right in the entryway to the, to the, of the house. And that's what we did. And we were living in another state at the time. So we bought that thing and put it, I mean, you walk in the door, put it right there in the doorway. And when we moved to our house here in the thriving metropolis of Canton, Florida, I don't know if you've ever been there. But as you walk through the door that we put it right there. It's right there the door opens the door opens this way. You walk in and the first thing that you see hanging right there is this beautiful copy of the 10 commandments. And we've done that in order to let everyone know from the time they step through our front door, we want them to know who our home is built on and what our home is built on. Now, if we If they walk in, see that, and then we get in there, and Judy and I are at each other's throat acting more like the devil than Jesus, that's going to undo the print. But hopefully what they'll see is something that embodies what they've referenced on the wall. We want people to know that God's not only welcome in our home, we want people to know God owns the home. It's not even our home. It belongs to Him, and He's the focus. Of actions and attitudes that go on within those walls. But hanging pictures and eliminating stumbling block, not enough. You've got to make sure that you're setting the right atmosphere spiritually because the Lord won't dwell in a dirty house. Did you know that the times in my life, even recent times, where I've been the most negative, the most discouraged, the most distracted, have been those times when I'm usually the furthest away from God. You know what the pattern is, don't you? Normally what happens, something bad happens. You don't like what happened because it's exploded the prosperity gospel that you really want to be true. Now you got to go through a difficult, tough moment in life. You don't understand why God is allowing any semblance of pain in your life. So you get angry with God and even though you would never say it, you say, well, I'm just going to show you I'm not going to pray and I'm not going to read the Bible. I may not even go to church for two or three weeks. I know the routine. Now, I'm a preacher, so i got to show up to church. I've tried that before. I said, I'm not going to that church anymore. Those people are mean. They don't like me. And I don't like them. And Judy said, honey, you've got to go. You're the pastor of the church. You have to get up and go. No, I've never. I just made that up. But I know the routine. I've known, I've I've pastored people, and I've known what they've gone through, and I've watched them run from the very things that they ought to be running toward. And it's the wrong response. So there's this direct connection between your personal relationship with God and the way you generally relate to life and react. Life. You know, what do you do when you don't feel like singing? You sing. You do it anyway. What do you do when you don't feel like worship? You worship anyway. You never make decisions based on feelings. You make decisions based on obedience to what God has said is right. And you trust that God will somehow, in His supernatural sovereignty, Allow your feelings to catch up with your obedience. Most people reverse that. They make decisions based on how they feel. I'm mad and I'm upset. And all you do is keep digging the hole deeper. No, you just keep doing the right things. You keep showing up. You keep praying. You say, God, I don't even know what I'm supposed to pray for. It seems like everything that I specifically pray for, the opposite happens, but I'm going to keep doing it. Because I know that my prayer life has more to do with me than really it does with you. And you keep doing those things you know to be the right things. And then God shows up in obvious ways. And he brings you through. So if you know somebody who claims to walk with the Lord and they're constantly negative, constantly critical, that's usually somebody who's out of fellowship with God. So you have to develop the right atmosphere, the right environment. That's where attitude begins. Make sure that the Lord is welcomed at home. Everybody tracking with me? Amen? Amen. Secondly, there's, there's a right approach as well as a right environment. You develop the right approach. There's, in this passage, uh, starting in verse 6, there is a wonderful attitude of expectancy, As Abraham kicks hospitality into high gear. Um, Do you remember all that we've talked about with respect to the Christian? Hospitality is a Christian discipline. Uh, We have seen it in the life of Lydia at Philippi. So Paul preaches the gospel, leads her to the Lord. What's the first thing that she does? Y'all come into my house and stay, right? Philippian jailer, same chapter. What must I do to be saved? Repent or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be saved. What's the first thing Philippian jailer does after he gets saved? Starts tending to the, 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 the lash wounds of Paul and Silas, and then he takes them to his house. Right? And then you got the little book of Philemon. We started our year off in Philemon, the first series I'd ever preached out of that shortest of all New Testament letters. And. There's major hospitality couched in terms of reconciliation. I'm sending him back. taking him into your home. And then Paul says, oh, by the way, when they let me out of this jail, the first place I'm coming, Philemon, is to your house. Get the guest room ready for me because ready or not, I'm coming. You think Philemon had a guest room ready for Paul? Yes or no? You bet he did because this was considered an obligation Well, what you see here is Abraham kicking ancient Near Eastern hospitality into high gear. Abraham knew that these are not just casual visitors. I mean, this this isn't Barney and Thelma Lou showing up rock on the front porch. Uh, Abraham knew that he was in the presence of royalty. And his attitude is revealed in his response to that. Let me ask you a question tonight. Uh, You know, because on Wednesday night, we're kind of laid back. Everybody's relaxed. And I hope, you know, kind of that way on Sunday morning to some degree. But do you realize that you're in the presence of royalty tonight? I'm not talking about me. The Bible has something to say about where two or three are gathered in my name. He's right here in the midst of us. The question is, did you even think about that when you came to church tonight? See, I think a lot of times we have a very casual approach and we can focus more on each other than we can focus on the Lord. And we play a dangerous game when we lose sight of the fact that we are in the presence of royalty. Every time we as the people of God gather together, it's one of the traps I find. I'm a pastor of the church, and I find that as an occasional trap, this problem of just strolling into church almost indifferently, casually, carelessly, starting to engage in conversations about any and everything except spiritual things, stuck in the motions, kind of getting in a routine and not really recognizing that whenever God's people gather together, we are in the midst of greatness. Now, it's a good thing that Abraham doesn't respond to the presence of Christ like that. You know, so, so many of us, I had a, I've got a sermon that I preached years ago. I don't think I've ever preached it here because I've never preached a sermon on, or a series on Jonah here. But I did years ago at my previous church. I need to get that out and put it in the microwave for y'all because it was a good one. But I had a, I had a, uh, a sermon uh, that basically highlighted the seven dwarves of Snow Rye and the seven dwarves. Every Christian or every church has all of the seven dwarves in them, every one. And there some some of the seven dwarves here tonight. Some are happy. Some are bashful. Some are sneezy. They drivel all the time, you know. Uh, Some are sleepy. Some are dopey. We won't name names. (laughs) Others are grumpy. And maybe that's some of you. And the thing about Abraham here is he's happy. Abraham is happy dwarf. And you see it in verse 6. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Get up, woman! No, he didn't say that. But it seems like he said something like that. Quick, three sears of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Judy said, That sounds like you, honey, about 6 o'clock every night. Where is my hossenfeffer? Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he'd prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. You know what's the most important thing about that? Our Lord Jesus Christ ate red meat. Can I have an amen tonight? In the house of God, take your bad attitude and your vegetarian tendencies out that door. Because I am on solid spiritual ground that Christians should be carnivores in the name of our Lord Christ. So Abraham... Now, if you're here a vegetarian or a vegan tonight, don't send me any emails. I don't want them. I'm just teasing with y'all. Eat what you want. Uh, but Abraham is very much like Christ here because he's serving. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And you know the thing, you know what I found about generally. Uh, that I've generally found about optimistic people, positive people, they tend to be givers. They tend to be generous people. Negative people usually are not generous people. Negative people are usually tight-fisted. Positive people usually live with an open hand. I'm not talking about giving money. Just borrow my tools. You need a car? Borrow the car. Whatever you need. They're there. They're, they're givers. They're servers. They they tend to be More givers than takers. And uh, Jesus was like that. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So here's the thing, you know, when we have these negative tendencies in our life, we just need to understand the problem is never so much the circumstances. The problem is usually with us. Somebody once said, and don't you know it's true, if I could kick in the seat of the pants the person responsible for most of our problems, I wouldn't be able to sit down for three weeks. And that's just true. We are, our biggest obstacle in life is us. But with God's help, you can change that. And one of the ways you change it is by just simply evaluating your approach to life. You learn to be humble. Well, again, it all boils down to a proper relationship with God. Jesus said, abide in me. And if you abide in me and I in you, um, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if you abide in Christ, then you're in the position for Christ to mold you and shape you after himself. And so you make that a matter of prayer. Lord, help me to become like you. Help me to be humble toward others. Help me to, to give and, and to serve and to not be worried when not everybody is serving me all the time. But just help me learn to give. I have found in my life when I'm going through difficult times or our family's having struggles, my extended family may be having struggles or... We got a lot of people in church, and I know people that are going through hard times, and I'm burdened by that. And sometimes life can just be a heavy burden to bear. And you know what I find does more than anything else is just find somebody to minister to, man. Quit making it about you. Don't sit around just going, I can't figure out why all this is happening to me. No, I mean, take that prayer sheet. And get on the phone, call somebody and say, hey, listen, just wanted you to know I prayed for you tonight. How are things going? Talk to me a while. Or pick up a meal and drive it over to somebody that you know having a hard time. Or write a card. So many of you write me cards. I keep every one of them. My secretary, she's packed boxes because the, the, the files bulge and it's got to be moved out. And I keep every one of them. Unless it's a nasty gram and then I I have to pray about keeping it. But I don't get many of those. But I keep all that stuff. Tremendous encouragement. And you know it's just hard to stay in dark places when you're making life about somebody else. And so pour yourself into other people. And that tends to set the stage for the dark cloud to be pulled back. As God uses you to be an instrument, a channel of blessing. So you develop the right approach to life just as Abraham did. Give, give, serve, serve. He didn't ask those guys for anything. It was all about what he could do for them. Okay? So this is very helpful when it comes to engaging with the right uh, attitude. And then, of course, uh, it all boils down to a proper relationship with God. Thirdly, you trust in the right authority. Now, of course, I taught Sunday morning about those Epicurean philosophers that Paul ran into at Athens, and they were the materialist. Uh, they were the ones that didn't believe that there was any life after death, You just lived in order to maximize pleasure, maximize material wealth, maximize financial gain. Grab all the gusto you can. Don't worry about the future because there is no future. Live it up for the moment. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's what most people tend to still live their life by even to this day. This world tells us the only way you're really going to be content and happy with your life and positive about your life is to collect and amass and store and save as much as you possibly can, as quickly as you possibly can. But that's the conventional wisdom of the world. It's not biblical. The source of our optimism is not found in accounts. It's not found in acquisitions. It's found in our authority, and that authority, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said many times, I think Christians ought to be the happiest, the most joyful, the most optimistic people in the whole world. There there really is no such phrase as negative Christian. I mean, I'm not even sure that that even exists. And yet, how many do we know that we would say, that's just a negative guy and he's in the house of the Lord every week? But there ought to be no such thing, because we have a Savior who died instead of us. We have a Savior who lives within us. We have a Savior who's coming back to get us. He died for us. He lives in us. He's coming back to receive us. Why shouldn't that make us the most thrilled, the most enthusiastic, the most joyful people? alive today. And yet, how many believers do you know whenever they speak? Nearly every word that comes out of their mouth is negative. Why? They're not depending on the right authority. I've often said it's not really all that difficult to determine who's walking in the Spirit of God and who's not. You don't need a seminary degree to figure that out. It's not hard to know if somebody's praying for you or not. You can usually tell that in a matter of seconds. And The reason is because they're just not living in an abiding relationship with the Lord. Now, the problem here, uh, this is where Sarah kind of comes into play. And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but the thing about Sarah is just about everything that we have seen from her, she just has a really hard time trusting God. Have you all noticed that? She has a hard time trusting authority. She was a believer, but she was a pessimistic believer. And here is the Lord himself. She just made a mistake dinner for crying out loud. She'd help prepare it. And here in verse 10, she overhears a conversation that the Lord is having with her husband. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, if you read this for the first time, what is the natural thing to expect Sarah to have done as a response? Hallelujah, glory to God. Break out the tambourine. Let's dance. Let's throw a party. The man just said, I fed him good. He's given us a blessing in return. Going to have that baby after all, even though I'm 480 years old. (laughs) Not quite that old. But that's not how she responds. Her response reveals, you remember the passage, it says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here's what it said in verse 12. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. This is kind of a biblical way of saying she, she's past childbearing age. And so when she hears this, verse 12 Sarah, what? Sarah laughed to herself, saying, I am, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, this isn't the laughter of joy, it's the laughter laughter of unbelief. And let me tell you something, Christian who's negative and pessimistic about life and about the future, if you're pessimistic about what God's up to in your life, what God's doing, how God's operating, that says a whole lot more about your view of God than it does about yourself. That reveals a ton about what you really think about the miracle working power of God. But if you're going to major on optimism in your life, one thing is, I think, non-negotiable. Never underestimate the power of God to do what God has promised to do. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now that's just one of the great questions statements of the Bible, and you ought to have it underlined in red, highlighted in yellow, circled around in pink, whatever, make it jump off the page. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's say that out loud together. Together. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Say it again. Is anything too hard? for the Lord. Man, that's just a terrific statement. What's the answer to that question? No, nothing's too hard for the Lord. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man out of the dust of the ground. God created the first woman out of the material, genetic material of the man. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And many of us, maybe even those here tonight, If you find yourself in the middle of dire straits, otherwise difficult, maybe even impossible circumstances, you have to grapple with that very question just as surely as Sarah did. Because in her mind, the difficulty was the womb. That was her problem. That was her brick wall. She had a barren womb. She was unable to conceive. That may not be your particular problem tonight. That may not be your obstacle. It may be something else, but here's the deal. Maybe it's financial problems. But to those who think their financial problems are beyond hope, Jesus says the same thing. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Maybe your problem is your marriage or another relationship. And if that's the case, if you think your marriage is on the brink of ruin beyond hope, Jesus says the same thing to you that he said to Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? To those who are looking to connect in relationships, or maybe you're trying to find a career that's satisfying to your life, or maybe you're just looking for life with meaning and purpose, maybe you're looking for hope beyond the grave. The question is the same, though the times are different. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the Lord Jesus is saying to you, listen, with me all things are possible. The glass is never half empty when you're walking with the Lord. It's always half full. God is able, last time I checked, to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work in us who know him by faith be it a barren womb, barren cupboards, barren life. I'm just saying it tonight. Nothing is too difficult for Christ. You know, theres you're not ornithologist, but I bet you know there's a world of difference between a buzzard and a hummingbird. World of difference. The buzzard flies around and he sees dead And decaying carcasses. And you know why? Because that's what he's looking for. Hummingbird flies around, never notices the death on the road. The hummingbird thrives on the nectar of beautiful, colorful plants. You know why? Because that's what he's looking for. One focuses on what's dead and disgusting. The other focuses on what's alive and beautiful. And both of them feed exactly on what they see. And so do you. What is it that you're looking for? You're looking for a reason to complain? I guarantee you, you'll find it. Or you're looking for a reason to rejoice. If that's true, you'll find it. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And it's attitude, attitude, attitude that makes all the difference both to you and to God. So look up and keep moving forward. Because for believers, the best is always yet to come. This is God's Word. And let all God's people say, Amen.